Welcome to episode four of the Photographers of Color podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Turner, post-MFA fellow in photography and coordinator of the Center for Photographers of Color here at the University of Arkansas. Again, the goal of this podcast is to collect oral history and open up a dialogue about what it means to be a person of color working within photography and other lens-based media today. I also want to take the time out to thank the University of Arkansas School of Art Endowment for making this podcast possible. Our guest today is Phoenix, Arizona-based artist Claire A. Warden. Claire's work explores intersecting ideas of identity, the other, and the psychology of knowledge and power. The constructive photograph is integral to her art's practice. She received her BFA in photography and a BA in art history from Arizona State University. Claire's work has been exhibited in the United States and abroad, including solo exhibitions of Mimesis at the Center for Fine Art Photography, the Colorado Photographic Art Center, and Art Intersection. She received an Artist Research and Development Grant from the Arizona Commission on the Arts, an Individual Artist Grant Award supported by Creative Capacity Fund, and the Contemporary Form Artist Grant. Most recently, she has been in residence at Latitude in Chicago and had a solo exhibition at the Philadelphia Photo Arts Center. Claire will also be given a lecture at the Society for Photographic Education Northwest Conference this September. In this episode, we talk about Claire's childhood and being asked the question, what are you, in relation to her outward appearance, and how this question led to the use of ambiguity through abstraction within her work today, in which she deals with the topics of identity, genetics, and representation. Enjoy the episode. Claire, thank you so much for sitting down with me today um, here over Skype and being willing to talk to me. Um, How's it going out in Phoenix right now? It's great. It's a little bit hot. (laughs) summertime in the desert mm-hmm. wow so I, I should get prepared I gotta come to Arizona at the end of July a little bit so I need to do I need to get prepared for the yes. heat yes okay <laughs> it's like 110 today and it's only gonna get hotter oh my goodness okay again thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to talk with me today how I like to start these interviews off is I try to uh, established the artist's voice first. And so I just want to start off by asking you, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood, life leading up into college, and how that led into you pursuing a career as an artist who uses photography? Yeah, that's a perfect question. So I I always usually get end up giving this background kind of information anyways when I give an artist talk because it's really kind of related to my artwork. So that's kind of perfect. Um, But I was born in Montreal, in Quebec, in in Canada. And um, so my family, I grew up all French speaking, because uh, in Quebec, it's French and English are the official languages. So I went to an all French speaking school when I was young. That really kind of influenced a lot of how I think about my work now. But I moved to the United States with my family when I was about 10, and my mother has a long English heritage, but she was born in Canada. So my father, they met in Canada, but my father was born in Bombay, and his family history gets kind of a lot more complicated because my grandmother was born in Pakistan before it was Pakistan. Um, so it was still part of India at that point. And my grandfather was born in Sri Lanka, but he 
Um, he's Parsi. He was Parsi, uh, which is a religion that comes from the Middle East, like Iran. And so our family background gets like way more diverse the deeper you go. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to the United States with my family, I was mostly a French speaker. I spoke a little bit of English, but mostly French. And so the first time in the United States, I was asked the question, what are you? And I was pretty young. And so that question, when I heard it for the first time, I was convinced that I was translating the question wrong because I was pretty young. And the question, what are you? I was thinking about it in a very literal way. Like, how can you possibly answer? What are you? I didn't understand it at all. So I was like, this must be some sort of translation error. Um, And I remember going home and talking to my parents about it and being like, what is this question? It just totally blew me away. And what I ended up realizing over time and through talking it out with my family was like, this is like a coded way of asking, what's your ethnic background? And it's like only this question that I encountered after we moved here. And um, I think that that gets into something a lot deeper you know, that's going on in the United States and how people deal with different ethnicities. But when I was young, I would answer this question as like, you know, the way I thought the asker, like what they wanted to hear, which was like, my father was born in India or I'm Indian or I'm half Indian or something like that. And typically the response would be like, okay, great. Yeah, that's... (laughs) That's the answer to the question I wanted, you know? Um, whereas um, as I got older, growing up in the United States and, you know, coming across new ideas, new ways of thinking about things, and especially identity and ethnicity, uh, it became a little bit more complicated, especially learning more about my family history. It was just like, that was so unsatisfying to say, like, you know, my father was born in India. Like, what, what is, you know, what does that have to do with anything what does that have to do with me I was born in Canada you know and and Mm -hmm. his ethnicity his nationality is Indian but his ethnicity is something totally different and you know I started trying to figure out these ways to answer this question when I was a teenager that was like well I'm Canadian or I'm a naturalized American or these different ways of answering the question and what I started realizing was that, you know, it doesn't have to do with accent, which I did have a French accent when I was younger. It doesn't have to do with nationality. It was specifically, you know, what, why do you look the way you do? Why do you not look like me or, you know, some variation of that? And that was something that I was considering very, very deeply when I was starting my current projects. But you you also asked about like how I got into photography, so mm-hmm. uh, I'll yeah, kind of end that. <laughs> yeah, because some of these things, you know, I believe, you know, when you become an artist, you're just living your life, and you have all these different experiences. You're living life a specific way. You have a family. Uh, there's things that you like, and then all of a sudden, at this point in your life, you happen upon this visual language, this thing called art, mm-hmm. and those things from the past really influence us at a certain point heavily. So I, your work is, you know, I can see that in your work. And yeah. How did you get into it? <laughs> so I was lucky that my family had introduced me to the arts at a really young age, kind kind of 
I mean, definitely related, but my grandmother is Hindu on my dad's side. And so when I was born, I had, well, I was a Hindu priest was there and he gave me a full astrological chart and uh, based, you know, on the day and the time and the location and the world that we are. And so in this chart, not only was I given a Hindu name, but I also, it, my parents were warned, I guess you could say that um, I was going to lead a creative life and, you know, be an artist. I mean, it said that in this chart. So maybe they were a little biased in a way or their expectations were kind of set very early on for me so luckily they embraced that and I was exposed to the arts really early on and I had taken art classes and I always was taking all the art classes I could possibly take um, when I was younger like in middle school and high school when I was in high school I was the president of the art club a friend of mine was, <laughs> was like so, it feels so long ago now, um, a friend of mine was in the photography class and she was telling me about how great this photography class was and I, th I think I must have been a sophomore or a, or a junior and, and I wanted to take, I must have been a sophomore, I wanted to take a photography class the next year. So I went to talk to the photography teacher and he said, well, I know who you are. You're the president of the art club. You know, <laughs> you can't just take a photography class. <laughs> you know, photography is not easy. Like he had this assumption that, you know, because I was the president of the art club that I was just going to waltz into this photography class and, you know, own it or something. And so in this really strange way, he kind of propositioned me to teach myself if I would dedicate myself to teaching myself photography for a year for my junior year after doing you know working after school to learn these how to develop film and how to you know print in the darkroom and you know how to use a scanner and all these things you know if I taught myself how to do it then he would let me into the advanced level photo class for my senior year I mean it, it's kind of wild to think about because now I teach photography also and I cannot fathom doing this to a student <laughs> but <laughs> you know I'd be like yes please come into my introduction class I will tell you everything I know you know mm -hmm. where he was like no you got to do it yourself you got to figure it out yourself and um, if you can and if you're dedicated if you show me that you're dedicated to it then I'll let you in it's such a strange thing to do to a high school student but but you know in this perfect way it was like um, kind of, uh, you know, I was at the same time that I was experimenting with my, the way my identity and how to express my identity in this, you know, kind of contrary way to what I was conditioned and raised to, you know, he was like, you can't have this so easily. It was kind of this perfect, you know, challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of like got me all fired up and and I did that. And then he let me into the advanced class in my senior year. And it just completely changed my life. It changed the way that I work um, for, you know, as long as I can remember when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to be a painter. That was my medium of choice. Um, I worked with oil paint on found objects. And this just blew everything open and changed everything. And, you know, in my senior year, I realized, you know, photography is a completely different way of expressing myself, 
it's the way that I need to express myself in the future. And then I, you know, decided I would go to Arizona State University for photography. And that was kind of my path from that moment on. Wow. No, that's that's pretty amazing. Like, I really like that teacher style because uh, I, I love teaching intro to photography, darkroom, 35 millimeter. I just love that intro class. And I love being, you know, I love being introduced to film and that, that being my first experience with photography. So, you know, I definitely can resonate with your with your experience and the fact that you taught yourself, you took on that challenge and taught yourself all those things. Like, It was pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty wild, but in a way, it kind of set the path for mm-hmm. the, my my learning through photography. It was like, figure it out yourself, <laughs> you know. Like, mm-hmm. I I double majored at Arizona State in art history, and that kind of goes back to you know, I, I as an undergraduate, I I be I befriended a few graduate students, and one graduate student in particular, um, he. This was around 2008 when, you know, the economy kind of exploded and graduate students were graduating and not getting jobs, <laughs> you know, there's like mm-hmm. no what to do with themselves. Like now they have this great degree and you know, nobody will hire them. And, and so he told me, you know, you have to be diverse. You have to do something different. You have to have more than just one skill, I guess. And um, so that's that's the reason I ended up double majoring in art history so that I could have these positions that, um, you know, I could work in a museum, I could teach, I could, you know, it kind of opened up the, the career path for me in a way um, by having this other major. There's somewhere I was going with that, but I think I might have lost it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you mentioned art history, I mean, to me, that's already like you putting yourself in a really good position because I was one of those people who had to learn art history a lot later while trying to make art. And it's like, if you, I think, if, you know, if you have a good relationship with that, you know, in, in your younger years, it, you know, you can get to that place a lot quicker, I think. And in my opinion, yeah. um, you know, you don't have to love art history, but, you know, just, you know, at least have some sort of relationship with it. And then, you you know, that begins to form, you know, who you are as an artist because, yeah. you know, you, you have positions on all these different things that happen historically. Um, so, yeah, actually, that just reminded me. So, you know, I, <laughs> I do have I do have a love for art history and I and I do have a very deep love for the history of photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was lucky to study with some some amazing faculty at ASU that really kind of fostered that love of photography. But then, you know, it kind of goes back to my first experience in photography that, you know, a lot of the stuff, there's a lot of, there was, you know, teaching the history of anything. There's gaps in that history. And sometimes it's, you know, the history that you learn is like the pared down kind of dry version. And there is like a lot more lively stories in history that you can learn if you want on your own and so like learning more about photo history learning about photographic processes and ultimately creating a process of my own to make my current work you know it's all like in a way it all kind of 
goes back to that first experience. It's like, you got to figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and speaking about your work, Claire, I've been aware of it a few years now and it's been, it's impacted me a lot. It's been very influential to me. Um, it helped me see that there was these infinite possibilities and what a photograph could look like, what a process could be. And the work that you do now, it doesn't take the normal approach uh, that people may, or a typical approach to deal with the the topic of identity. You know, someone may take portraits, someone may do still life images of like uh, family heirlooms. Your work doesn't use landscapes in the typical sense. And so can you speak about using ambiguity (laughs) uh, in your work aesthetically? Um, to talk about identity. How did you come up with this conceptual way of working? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really appreciate that kind of um, introduction to that, to this process that I I do. Um, And you really kind of hit the nail on the head in some sense, because, you know, the question, what are you? That question that I was grappling with as a teenager, and then I continued to grapple with as I got older, you know, um, how do I answer that question? Why do I get asked that question? Why do some people not get asked that question? Um, and how has that being asked that question informed the way that I view myself, like my own identity formation? And that's, you know, something that I've thought more and more about the more that I've made this work with mimesis, because, you know, what it really comes down to is, you know, I mean, genetics are complicated, but you could say that I'm 50% my my mom and 50% my dad. And why do I identify with my dad's heritage more than my mom's? You know, it's it's a result of being perceived a certain way over and over and over by other people. That idea of being looked at and then kind of invaded in a way, like you're consciousness as a person is kind of like invaded and I I have a piece which I'll maybe we can talk about in a little bit called double consciousness which of course references W.E.B. Du Bois um, term double consciousness Mm -hmm. Um, but but it's this like awareness of other people and what what you can expect from them to see you you know the secondary awareness of how other people perceive you in about 2013, um, I was doing experiments on black and white 4x5 film. That's my favorite, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a perfect size to work with. And I was was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I had a studio apartment, and and my, my... art studio was in a closet like a tiny closet in the studio apartment and all these exp- I was doing a bunch of different cameraless kind of experiments and one of them was to apply saliva to the emulsion of this piece of four by five film that had been developed and I essentially put it in that space and left it for about two months and that first time when I revisited that negative and I realized what was happening. I mean, at first I had no idea what had happened to this negative and I had some sort of, I guess, a hypothesis of what I thought would happen and it totally, it was completely different. What I realized was happening is that saliva has digestive enzymes, among other things like DNA, 
that it carries in, you carry in your saliva. And what had happened, because black and white negative film is composed of silver and gelatin on a plastic substrate, gelatin is digestible. So the digestive enzymes in saliva actually etched away the emulsion, like basically mm. broke it down. What was left over was biologic matter and metallic silver. And I, I had to sit on that experiment for a little while, like about a year almost, to kind of wrap my mind around, you know, what, what does this mean? Can I reproduce it over and over? And when I realized, you know, the kind of the crux of the irritation of this question, what are you, is has to do with somebody kind of invading my space and questioning why the way, why do I look the way I do, you know, my likeness. Um, I realized that this was a uniquely qualified process to address my identity, my experiences, my genetic makeup without mm -hmm. actually addressing my likeness. So it was like, to me, I found this perfect process to kind of, it, investigate experiment with all these things that had been kind of bubbling up inside but in a way that you know you're totally right on like when we see people talking about identity in photography or just you know most photography in general it's usually it lends itself well to clear representation so it's like easy to read if we see a person we you know we know like we can read this photo in a certain way. I, had, I was having a conversation with, with somebody a while ago and about the readability of, of mimesis or like the lack thereof, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this question, what are you and the issues I have with it? And you know, they were like, well, maybe, you know, maybe the, it really is more perfect than you think because you're making this intentionally difficult to read photograph and maybe you were you know they were kind of speculating here but they're like maybe you're making this that you consider part of yourself because you wish you were you know or because you are not also not readable you know so you're making this thing that's like very much a part of you and your experience and and I don't think they're wrong in those ideas I think it's a pretty interesting way of looking at it like these are hard to read just like my experiences of being, you know, in quotation, you know, like hard to read as, um, you know, ethnically and mm -hmm. like ethnic, ambiguous. And, and that's why, you know, this question persists. Yeah, I think I really agree with that idea of uh, readability around mimesis because when you look at your work without any knowledge of who you are or without any, you know, reference point, it draws you in. You're, you're really asking a lot of the viewer. To, you're challenging the viewer a lot. And it, it it's a very speculative space, which makes it a very powerful space, in my opinion. This idea of working with abstraction in photography, I mean, one of the questions uh, when I first started making this work and showing it, and anybody who, you know, has kind of like actively tried to get their work out into the photo community probably has experienced portfolio reviews, you know, like the 15 to 20 minutes, like, you know, elevator speech, here it is, like, what do you think? But to do something like that with 
work that requires uh, a thoughtful space, maybe quiet, maybe thinking about it a little bit longer than 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, I, I would open my portfolio up to people and almost immediately, when I was still kind of like figuring out how to talk about this work, the first question that I would receive about this work is, okay, what am I looking at? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I, and I was like, I couldn't articulate at the time when I was first starting to, to show this work exactly why I loved that question. <laughs> but, but I really realized that when something should be easy to read, and it's not. That's where these questions come from. What are you? What is this? What am I looking at? And then I was like, okay, this is perfect. This is perfect that I'm doing this process in photography. Somebody had once asked me, well, you know, if it's abstract, like, why why are you not doing this as a painting or a drawing or sculpture or something, anything else? Why does it have to be photography? And then, you know, that was my answer. You know, it was like, because photography is usually clearly read. And when it's not, people have this desire, some people have this desire to know. And it's like this furiously burning desire to be like, I I have to know what you did. What is this? What am I looking at? Tell me, you know, the process. And and in the end of it, what I what I like about the psychology of that is because it was nothing representational ever to begin with you know knowing all this background about the process and how I made something and what materials I'm using you know does it make you like it more Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know abstract images you know abstract images you're either drawn to them for something very deep and you know related to the the viewer's experience or you're not right so Knowing this background information, I kind of, I mean, I, I, it's so important for me to share it, but on another sense, it's like, but, you know, does that change how you view the piece? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And what you're talking about right there, I think your work and going back to the idea of readability, and then you talk about the saliva and the digestion of this gelatin, um, that DNA presence, and then it's displayed visually, it's that may be a more accurate readability of you um, and this difficulty and readability of your ethnicity that people keep asking you, what are you? And so, you know, in a way, it may be more accurate. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, it is like the most accurate way. I mean, it is my DNA. Mm-hmm. If you want to know what I am, you know, that that is that is it in in a sense right if you know you just want to know about my biology mm-hmm. um but of course you know that that kind of leads into the second part of my process which you know of course biology doesn't only make up somebody's identity i mean for me over time i i think a, a lot you know of course biology plays into it but the cultural, sociocultural forces that are outside of me play a really big part in that too. And that's where um, after this first 
process of using saliva when that process is complete. And when I'm working with that process, I usually, I let that process kind of go on its own, do its own thing. And when that process is complete and the negative is dry, I do mark making on top of that. Usually the mark making is additive or subtractive from the first process. So I'm physically adding something or removing something from the organic patterning that is created from the etching process of using saliva. So early on in my research, I came across this term called impress impression management. And that is a term that I kind of really loved. It basically is used, it's a term used for the way that we try to manage other people's impressions of ourselves, which is impossible because people are going to approach us and no matter how we try to present ourselves, our hairstyles, or you know, information we give and choose to withhold, the clothes we wear, you know, no matter what we try to manage of other people's impressions, most people make split-second decision about, you know, who we are, what, you know, kind of person we're going to be um, right away. So it's, it's this sociological term that I kind of really loved because it's such a futile act in a way of like trying to manage other people's perceptions. Um, but I love that idea of this editing, this like editing of our makeup, our biological makeup. And so that's kind of the foundation of my mark making, it's like usually adding or subtracting from that first process. And that's where a lot of the more obvious marks in the work come from um, is that secondary process. Mm -hmm. And speaking about the way your work looks, it has like a, under a microscopic type of look, uh, a celestial feel to it you know, at face value, but underlyingly it like leads back to the aesthetics of ambiguity and you mentioned abstraction. Um, it's a very intentional choice, the way your photographs look. So what is it about this microscopic and celestial, you know, aesthetic of your work that lends itself to, uh, to being a way uh, you choose to construct or filter your work through? Um, and speaking of celestial, uh, you have this other project called 99 Moons or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, the the microscopic and the celestial aspects of the work, I mean, really are um, kind of like a, I mean, it's really part of the, the process. I mean, it's a happy accident that it can make sense in a way with the work. And I feel like often people who can read into that can have some sort of almost, a, they can say it better than I can, but, you know, what I, what I, what I like about seeing something like close up and then you know something that seems far away is, you know, how you can see a person and the complexity of a person. You know, you can see the person in their entirety, um, and as you get to know a person, like maybe as you approach an artwork, you get to see like the more like more of the nuances of that particular art piece so like you know the closer you get to something the more it reveals and that's part of the reason that I love this work at at such a large size too because mm -hmm. um, most of the work um, after the negative is finished and I you know I've scanned it and 
inverted it to a positive, I'll print it digitally. I actually started using a process called piezography um, to print all the work, but they're all very large scale. They're all 36 inches high and the lengths are as long as over seven feet long. So, um, you know, that, that physical relationship of seeing an entire object or if you associate it to a person, you know, seeing something in its entirety and then seeing its nuances as well is like kind of something that I'm interested in. I think that kind of gets to your question, I hope. Yeah, let's talk about one of your images. One that really stood out to me was number 15, genetics. It's this large fingerprint uh, surrounded by what seems like or is X's and O's, but we don't really know what those refer to. Uh, and I read a review about your work, was comparing it to like football plays, X's and O's. But for me, that that didn't really, you know, resonate with me. That's not what I got from that image. From that image, it reminded me immediately of something like a Punit Square. And I immediately thought of genotype and phenotype. And for me, that goes back to the idea of biology and science. And something you uh, spoke about before in a previous interview, it's often not the most sophisticated way to understand someone's identity. And I go back to genotype and phenotype and then biology. We have no control of all this. We don't, we don't, we can't dictate any of this. It affects our outward appearance, whatever. We don't dictate any of that. That's not, that's out of our control. So, so can you tell us about that image? Yeah, no, I, so that review that you mentioned, I mean, I love hearing people's interpretation of any piece in that series, because I think it, you know, an interpretation of an abstract work, I mean, I think a lot of times there's this kind of like hesitation to share um, an interpretation or what a feeling or, you know, something like that, because um, there's this kind of, how do I describe it? It's like an air around abstract work that's, you know, well, you know, if you don't know what it means already, you know, then you're missing something, you know, <laughs> like, which, of course, it's not the case with, I would say, probably most art, but, you know, especially my work, it's like, you know, what people get out of it themselves is equally important, if not, you know, more important, because I can only tell my story, and other people bring their own experiences to it and it enriches it. So, um, you know, I love hearing your interpretation of those marks and um, the marks that, you know, this writer wrote about. And w w that, that came about, it, I kind of view that image of the fingerprint as cornerstone piece because it is definitely the most representational out of all of the work you know most people can clearly identify that that is a fingerprint and what is the sim symbolism of a fingerprint you know like every fingerprint is different every person has you know 10 different fingerprints because no fingerprint is the same so I kind of love that association of you know this is something very unique to every person but the marks that kind of came after, I was looking through a photo book. And in that photo book, there was these, they seemed almost like arbitrary. Um, 
you know, it was the marks for their plinter to go back and like dodge here, burn there and, you know, plus five and, you know, minus one and things that were circled and little spots of dust that were crossed out. And, you know, in a way, this image, it could be fine the way that it was, you know, printed, you know, I, I, I hesitate a little bit to say that because I always, you know, tell students, you know, you have to learn how to dodge and burn and split filter and no dust and this and that. So I, I totally understand where these marks come from, but in a way it was like, it felt a little arbitrary to me. It's like, it's totally a personal choice to like, you know, make that part darker and that part lighter. And, you know, that's part of the artistic process of printing in the dark room, but, you know, totally subjective. And so I was thinking about those marks as like a mark that could be a subjective thing. Just by chance, later that week, I saw marks on a body before plastic surgery, you know, marks that a doctor would make, you know, dotted lines and X's and <laughs> arrows and things like that. To me, it just clicked as like, you know, this editing, this arbitrary editing in a photograph, arbitrary editing of a body, things that are just not liked about a body for whatever reason, because of, you know, um, you know, I mean, what's, how do you determine what makes a, a perfectly printed photograph? I mean, it's based on an accumulation of seeing a certain type of photograph that you, somebody deems as the ideal photograph or the ideal printed photograph. So, you know, this, this idea of subjective marks to make an ideal and then of kind of applying that to a body in a way, you know, it, it made it made me think of things that I, when I was younger, felt like, well, you know, I don't like, you know, my nose, for example, <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> Uh, just off the top of my head, you know. Um, <laughs> now, when I was younger, I like I didn't like my nose because um, my nose has like this little bump in it, like right in the middle, and and that was based on you know seeing an accumulation of images of like ideal faces, whatever that means. But you know, like in advertising and you know makeup advertisements and stuff like that, and then eventually meeting my family that still lives in India and realizing, oh my God, all of you guys have the same bump in your nose. You know, like we, I have the same nose because of my genetics. And that's what it comes back to is like this unique imprint and like all the subjective things, these outside forces, these are impression, these that make an impression on people that like, you know, something arbitrary isn't ideal. But what it comes down to is like genetics, right? Things you can control, things that are based on history, things that are, you know, beautiful in their own way. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I think you're on the right, I think you, your interpretation was like kind of right in line with what I was thinking. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of like a long way of, you know, getting to this, you know, point in a way, but that's, that was kind of like the path that that piece took mm -hmm. um, over the course of a week or two, you know, came to this point that was like, things that can be disliked about anything are based on outside, 
outside forces of what ideal things are, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing your intentions with making that image. And then uh, you mentioned your nose and the bump and then seeing all your family in India with the same thing. It's like, it reminds me of my dad and how him and all his siblings have the same exact gap. But me and my brothers don't have it. But all my first cousins on my dad's side, they have the gap. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it just skips generations and, you know. You know, it just moves around. You know, you never know what you're going to get, really. Um, yeah. It's just an interesting thing. I mean, like, in an individual to look at themselves out out of context and be like, oh, there's these things I don't like about myself. But then if you can think about it in this context of history and genetics and the family, then it's like, you know, maybe those things that, you know, out of context, you're like, I don't like this because it's not perfect, you know, can be, you can learn to love them because, connects you to this greater you know the world the communities you know it's like something that really physically connects you to history mm -hmm. <laughs> and let's shift um to one of your other projects very briefly uh it's a project titled salt studies and preservation in studies in preservation and manipulation when i hear salt i immediately think of william henry fox talbot mm -hmm photo history, um, this scientist coming up with this photographic process, and also it makes me think of Anna Atkins. Um, and so they're both related, uh, not only in technique, but subject, and, and your work is related in that same pool. But this also makes me think about you being a photographer of color. You know, in photo history, we won't see anyone like us associated with the salt print, founding it, nothing, using it. And so I like how you reclaim that space within the history of photography, um, but also within the history of European colonization as well. So what are your thoughts on that work? Um, how'd you come up with it? And yeah, absolutely. So I, I, so a lot of my work kind of starts with research or reading some, something that kind of spurs more research that leads to a project. And, um, my original interest in salt, I actually had read, and once I became really interested in salt, I, I read a book called Salt by Mark Kurlansky, um, and it's like just like the entire history of salt, which is pretty incredible. But I was interested in salt in relation to British colonization in India and salt taxes and uh and salt has, you know, salt has been valued more than gold in history and this kind of like interesting history of salt. And But what, what salt actually does, you know, as a mineral, you know, so it's kind of like a combination of like history and science that was my interest in salt, a, cult, a cultural history and science. And salt is also a preservative. So I like this idea of, using a preservative on plant matter that was from my, you know, environment and as a way to kind of preserve this object, these objects that I was finding. So I would take the plant object from my environment and I would bring it into my workspace and put it in a bath of salt water. And, you know, salt obviously is ne necessary to sustain life, but obviously if you can outweigh a certain balance of salt, you can extinguish life. And so 
these plants would die because they were surrounded by too much salt and the salt would crystallize all over them and the, so I've made this kind of preserved plant matter that's totally transformed by the preservative. So it's, a, it's this attempt at it, something completely futile, the attempt at preservation. Mm -hmm. um, and then I ended up photographing the objects in a way that references botanical illustrations, which was another interesting thing in regards to colonization. When Western uh, colonizers would come to a new country, one of the first things that they would do is bring a botanist and a botanical illustrator and discover all the plant, uh, the new plant life, right? And, you know, determine what is edible, what is lucrative, uh, what is toxic and dangerous, you know, what, what's helpful, what's herbal and medicinal and, you know, kind of like categorize all of these new plants, you know, new, of course, in quotations, because, you know, people inhabit these spaces and know about these plants. But these colonizers, would, that would be one of the first things they would do. So there's this kind of incredible history of, you know, especially like Portuguese and the British in India making this, I mean, beautiful catalogs of botanical illustrations. But of course, they're, you know, meant for, you know, European countries to benefit off of other countries <laughs> so so and then I guess like even more you know my interest in botanical illustrations as this kind of way of making everything conform neatly you know a, a book maybe is eight by ten inches and they're cataloging plant matter that's all different sizes and they make it fit on the same size page so it's like not only was it like kind of my interest in colonization um, and how, how what are the things that happen in that process but also like this kind of forced uniformity that comes along with it even in a very small way like a botanical a catalog of botanical illustrations and so I, my plant matter was all these different sizes but then I would photograph it with my large format camera and they'd all be you know on a four by five sheet of film and I would print them using platinum palladium, which is, uh, you know, one of the most chemically stable photographic processes. So it's kind of complicating this idea of like preservation and the futility of it. You know, you're making us, you know, this beautiful, stable process, but it's on paper, you know, so it's like, <laughs> it's only going to last as long as paper lasts. And um, I mean, that whether somebody gets all of these things out of that series, is, um, you know, for the viewer to decide, but uh, those were like kind of all the things that were interesting to me um, and that led to making that work. And that work actually led kind of directly to mimesis because it really does kind of have more of a biological scientific lean to it because so much of my interest in that project had to do with like colonization and um, how people interact with other cultures and you know it, it totally makes sense for this the time because I was working at the Getty Museum in the research institute and I was in I was working in a library basically I was photographing the Getty's collection 
in the library. So this idea of cataloging and you know uniformity was like uh, you know all in my mind at the time. It was perfect timing, but what I came to realize when I was living in Los Angeles was like this is not getting to the the heart of my interest, which is like identity, like identity, and you know um, all the complicated things that surround it. That's what led to that experimentation with film and discovering a cameraless process and, you know, all of that kind of just flowed right into it because, you know, I realized, you know, I need to be talking about something more. And speaking of uh, bodies of work influencing another, let's switch back to mimesis for a little bit. You're very present. You're very active. You can see the performance in the work. And that makes me think of visual culture. Five of the seven principles of visual culture is power, ideology, representation, seduction, gaze. Um, how do these terms relate back to your ideas or themes in your work, mainly looking at power? Uh, mm -hmm. You talk about how people ask you the question, what are you? And part of your response is making the work. Uh, you are reclaiming or taking back your power with the work you make. Uh, the photograph is demanding us to ask, what am I looking at versus what are you? Yeah, I love that. Um, I think there is kind of a lot of reclaiming power in this work for me. I mean, I, you know, I don't think this work has answered any questions, you know, um, regarding, you know, how better to answer that question other than these could be an answer, but it hasn't provided any answers. And it, and honestly, it's, it's brought up a lot more questions over time. Um, but power is such an interesting, um, aspect to this work because not only is there a relationship with like reclaiming power and, you know, uh, in my experience, um, to reclaim my answer in a way. Uh, but there's also like this psychology of looking and, 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 the, and the power that's like associated with that, especially at something that's abstracted. I mean, and I guess one of the, one of the pieces that comes to mind as far as reclaiming power is a piece called uh, Not Basic Color Theory, number nine, Not Basic Color Theory. And that piece, so a lot of the, the work has um, titles that can be um, still quite vague, which, you know, is part of the experience of like somebody bringing their own experience to it um, and however they interpret that title. But all of the work either comes from a personal collective experience or a sociological term. So like the most obvious sociological term that I have used for a title is Rorschach, which is like this inkblot test. And that's exactly how that piece was made specifically to reference that, you know, personality test. But, but number nine, not basic color theory, references a personal experience that my family's had while they were at a department store. And over my, the course of my mining through personal experiences, it's interesting how many experiences like this happen um, kind of in these vulnerable, 
vulnerable spaces where you are in public and it's vulnerable in that maybe I, I and my family are not expecting to be questioned. Um, and that's like what it makes it vulnerable, like at a grocery store or a department store or getting coffee or being at a park or something like that. It's like you're going throughout your day doing your thing and then, you know, the, you become vulnerable all of a sudden with a question. And so that piece, my family was at a department store and a salesperson asked my father where he was from. And so he said, well, I'm from India. And the guy, the salesperson, looked totally bewildered and said, India? What are you, like, a watered-down Indian? You're so light. And, like, my whole family was just like, what are you talking about? You know, like, it was, like, horrifying in a way. And, you know, then he looked over at my mother, who's fair-skinned, and was like, he looks at her and then he looks at my brother, who is darker than all of us, and, you know, and he's like, he looks at my mom, he looks at my brother, and he's like, and this is your son? Like, he's so much darker than you. And it was just like, it was like um, this, tra this train of thought that was just like spilling over that he should have never expressed out loud, you know, and... You know, it was like the same, and I've said this like a couple of times, you know, it's an invasion in a way, you know, it's like invading your, your cell, your body and your space and your mental state and, you know, your plan for the day. And it just completely disrupted our family. It was like, you know, and uh, actually my husband, uh, who at the time was my fiance, he was there. And that was one of the first times that he had ex witnessed something like this and so I mean everyone came home and was just bewildered like how could this guy invade our space be so aggressive with his questioning question genetics I mean like nobody can control you know the color of their child's skin you know like that's just the way it is and to be called down called like a watered down Indian was like so offensive and and uh, speaks to an, a level of in ignorance of, you know, what what people who come from India look like. I mean, you know, that's like asking, like, what does an American look like? What does a Canadian look like? What does an Indian look like? I mean, it, you know, it's based on some generic caricature or something of, like, what an Indian is supposed to look like. And so it brought up all these things that was just like, now, all of a sudden, we have to deal with these feelings and these new thoughts and how to process, like, this kind of, like, affront by a person that we don't even know. And so that piece was inspired by that experience. And I'm actually working on a new piece, which I typically don't talk about pieces that aren't finished, but it feels appropriate. Um, it's, it's called Dot Not Feather. And I don't really know if that is a something that people have heard across the country as like a something that people say. But uh, when people would ask me, what am I? And when I 
when I would say that I'm Indian or that my father was from India or that I, you know, they'd say, well, oh, well, I mean, Indian, are you like Indian from India or, you know, Native American? Aside from the fact that like, you know, calling indigenous North American groups Indian still is like a little bit, you know, of a dated way of talking about people, you know. The, when I would answer that, you know, East India, like my father was born in India, the the response sometimes in the Southwest, at least, is, oh, dot, not feather, you know, in relation to a bindi that Hindu women wear. And it's just, it like, it's so more, much more complicated than that, you know? It's not that, you know, I mean, Hinduism is like a... a you know, a majority in India, but there are other religions in India, like Parsis and Muslims and Buddhists, you know, I mean, it's just like, not even getting started about like, the feather in reference to indigenous people, like, and what that means as a sacred object to them. It's just like, it's such a paring down of complex, like the complexity of people and cultures, there's like, baffling to me. And so I'm making a piece based on um, my experiences in the Southwest being, you know, people saying, oh, okay, dot, not feather, you know? It's like, how do people think this is an okay simplification of culture and, and groups of people? It's just, you know, it's just crazy. Wow. That story you just told brings up, uh, it makes me think of perception, how mm -hmm. people perceive us. How do you feel others perceive the work that you do? You having all these different interactions. You're speaking about the work. Are you having interactions where it's like, you know, let me get back to my studio and make more work because people aren't getting it. Or <laughs> do, are you finding uh, <laughs> that people are, some people are getting the work? Yeah, I think, you know, the more that I talk about the work, the more, I mean, over time, it, the work has evolved. Um, which I think is a good thing. Um, and it's kind of even gotten a little more specific than it had started out as. Um, so in a way, early on, you know, with this work, not only did I have to kind of discover a new way of talking about photography, and it was new to me, it wasn't necessarily new in general. One of the books that um, really was influential to me when I was starting this work was Lyle Rexer's book, The Edge of Vision. Um, which is a really wonderful uh, collection of essays on kind of like almost like a chronological group of essays based on the history of abstraction and photography. And that really helped hone my language. But not only did I have to hone that language, I had to hone a language about, you know, work about identity and even even like really specific things about you know the the way that I talk about the process because when I began making this work, kind of like in reference to your question, I I would say I spit on my negatives, and that word spit would bring up this like visceral visceral reaction from uh, the people that I was talking to, like you know they could feel it or they could be repulsed by it or you know it was such a spit is such a, like a loaded word. You know, it's like a rejection 
or, you know, a violent act or, you know, just some sort of like expulsion outward, you know, like it just it was so loaded that I was like, you know, I had to shift all of my language from photography to process to conceptual the way that I talked about it conceptually and um you know obviously I say saliva now which is like a lot more technical biological you know it's like it gets to the heart of the work a little bit better anyways but so you know talking about the work like finding the right way to talk about the work just alone took you know a while to hone that skill and then once I found the right way to talk about the work I had really positive reactions to it and I think a lot of it had to do with how I talked about it you know the way that I would give an artist talk and then you know it, it was actually this really wonderful experience where I was like I I am on the right path with this work like this is saying the right things you know because then I, I was having people come up to me and say I get asked that question all the time you know, or I totally identify with that experience, or I can see that in that one piece, or the totally opposite experience that's like, I am baffled that you've been asked that question. I don't understand it at all. I've never been asked that question in my life, you know? So finding ways to initiate a dialogue was really, I realized, an important part of this work because the nature of abstract work is you know, maybe a, le a little easier to get into in a way uh, when you're talking about something that can be uncomfortable or sensitive or, um, you know, my personal experiences and the experiences of other people of color that come into this work, you know, not everybody is going to sign up for a discussion about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And if they don't know what they're getting into, then, you know, maybe I can reach some people who have never thought of something a certain way. And that's one of the really interesting things about this work is that it doesn't it doesn't announce itself necessarily. Um, and that goes back to it being difficult to read, but in it being difficult to read, I can have these like really wonderful conversations that, you know, can maybe open up somebody who who has not experienced these kinds of things in their life, or, you know, somebody can find comfort in talking to somebody who has or you know um, having people say like well, you know I really like how you said that or you know I really like how this piece articulates that experience or something like that so yeah I mean I probably early on there were moments where I was like I need to go back to the studio but mostly I think it had to do with I need to go back to my studio and look and research and find different ways to talk about abstract work mm-hmm and I think earlier you mentioned a piece titled Double Consciousness and its relationship to W.E.B. Du Bois. Would you want to speak about that piece? Yeah. So um, that piece is a triptych. So there's three four by five negatives that I was working with. And I was reading um, W.E.B. Du Bois and then I came across that term and it, it just kind of like made, I, it struck me in this way that I was like, oh, there's a word for this, you know, like before I, these, all of this research that I've done is like, oh, you know, there, are, you know, it kind of opens me up in a way. It's like, I knew that my experiences couldn't be unique, right? I knew that they had to have happened before, 
because they were happening so often to me. I was like, I can't, you know, this can't be unique to me. And so the more research I did, I was like, okay, wow, there's like words for these feelings. Double consciousness, of course, is, you know, everybody has a consciousness of themselves as a person. And then sometimes people of color have a secondary consciousness of, you know, this awareness of how people perceive them. And it was just like this click, you know, it's like, oh, that's what this is called. You know, I mean, he, Du Bois coined that term and then, you know, people have referenced it ever since because, you know, this is something that has continued on for over a hundred years. I wanted to kind of take that term and then apply it to, I, I guess, my own story. So that piece, Double Consciousness, is a triptych. And I wanted it to be a triptych because there is these kind of like two circles that can be viewed as worlds or bodies or some sort of vessel or entity. And the way that I was working, mark making on that piece was the center piece was flipped. So I was creating this circle that had kind of a dark ring and a circle that had a lighter ring. So the two circles could represent like a double consciousness. It could represent two people. The three negatives could represent three people. I liked this idea of flipping the negative back over so that these two circles kind of, kind of match up, but the center piece doesn't really quite line up with either of the two outer pieces so um, kind of like a reference to um, you know being the child of parents who are multi-ethnic and kind of being part of both worlds but also being part of neither you know this and and knowing that I'm part of neither because of the external forces that continuously tell me that I'm part of neither like in the United States you know I get asked what are you and when I visited India they were like where are you from because they're like you know you're not from here so you know it's just like you know that that piece you know the the idea of double consciousness represented as two circular shapes but also kind of transplanted onto my story of two worlds and the centerpiece not quite matching up with either one yeah, and that, that piece is, like I mentioned, like the pieces are pretty large, and so that piece is 36 inches by 90 inches. Sorry, I mean, it's like kind of this massive piece, too, so you have this really real body experience with that piece. And my last question for you, Claire, is what's next? I know you just had the show at Philly Photo Arts Center. You're probably showing other places in the future. Uh, what's next uh, in your studio? Uh, and I mentioned nine, the project about the moons earlier, but we didn't get to talk about it. So, yeah, I mean that's that's actually a little bit of what is next. So I I have a I'll be part of a show at Catherine Edelman Gallery in Chicago um, called Control P, and um, the premise of that exhibition is work that is primarily promoted online and um, can be discovered and you know uh, through different media sources and so that project that you mentioned 99 moons which is so fresh for me um, to talk about but 
it, it, it's been developing very quickly. Um, it's a cameraless process. And, you know, it, I've been working on it so quickly that, you know, I haven't even put it on my website yet. But it's all on Instagram. That's, you know, it was kind of almost like a social experiment for me to see, you know, can I make a project that I only promote through social media? Um, and, you know, eventually I'll remedy that. But, um, you know, it's 99 Moon Projects on Instagram is where you can find it. So that, that'll be in a show in September, um, probably about eight pieces. They're, yeah, they're, it's been really kind of fun because Mimesis is such like a long-term project and some of the pieces take so long to complete. You know, I work on them like, you know, the mark making can, the finding the right uh, inspiration for the mark making can take months. So this 99 Moons is kind of like this, you know, um, instant gratification in a way, like a, <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for somebody who is like very process oriented. I mean, making a cameraless body of work is kind of funny to say it's like instant gratification, but it kind of is. And, um, yeah, so I'm really I'm excited to be showing that in Chicago, and there'll be more. Yeah, congratulations on the show at Catherine Edelman Gallery, and we look forward to like just more of the work that you're going to be doing in the future, and we'll keep an eye out for it. Thank you so much for doing this thank, interview. Thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate talking with you. Absolutely. That was my interview with Claire A. Warden. To find out more about the Center for Photographers of Color, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Photogs of Color. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store. Thank you for listening. Until next time.